yeah, my name is Matt Kimmel, and um, I'm a certified pastoral counselor. I operate out of Albany um, in Salem, and uh, I've been doing some kind of pastoral work for about 15 years now. And um, yeah, so I, I real life, and this is just bothering me. We're going to talk about anxiety tonight. <laughs> um, so uh, real life, uh, I go back to, I think the first time I helped was when real life was back at Arnold Dining Hall, which was, how many venues ago was that? It was a lot. It was a lot. Yeah, so, um, so I'm just glad to be here. Um, man, you guys are an uh, important time in life. Every one of you has figured out your lives, and you're going after the degree that will complete everything for you right now. And I'm just proud of you. Great job. Um, uh, a little about me. Uh, next. Oh, I get it. I have the power today. Uh, this is my wife. She's wonderful. Names, uh, her name's Becca. My son, Jebediah, and my daughter, Adeline. Um, I have a very good-looking family. They make me look good. Um, they said it was okay for me to be in the picture still, so that was great. Um, <clears throat> So yeah, I'm helping plant a new church in North Albany. Uh, we planted in uh, February of 2020, met five times, and then were booted because of the pandemic. Um, and so it's been an interesting journey to plant a church in the midst of a pandemic. So uh, if you want another uh, teaching sometime on perseverance, let me know. Um, I work under this guy. Uh, he supervises me. His name is Dr. David Manock. Uh, he's out of Salem Integrative Counseling Institute. Um, Dr. Manock uh, started pastoring in 1975, um, and uh, he started doing psychotherapy in the early 80s, so he's been doing that for about 40 years. Um, he helped build George Fox's counseling program and department, chaired Multnomah Psych Department. Oh, I have a slide for all that. Um, he was a professor at all those other places. Um, anyways, he's a smart dude, a lot smarter than I am. Uh, and basically, uh, over the last few years, he's just kind of taken me under his wing and has, has mentored me and supervised me in my practice. And I started a, a private uh, pastoral counseling practice a couple years ago, and it's booming because everybody's freaking out. So uh, business is great. Um, it's good. So, uh, if you are interested in these, anybody taking uh, psych right now? Anybody taking, raise your hand higher, you don't have to, okay. Anybody a psych major? Raise your hand if you're a psych major. Chad, make notes, they need a lot of prayer, man. <laughs> a lot of prayer. Okay, so uh, Dr. Manock um, has taken a hybridized theory, uh, created a hybridized theory um, utilizing these five pillars. Attachment theory, um, neurobiology, um, we'll get into that more, intersubjectivity, psychoanalysis, emotionally focused therapy, and then he did his seven-year dissertation on um, if we can have attachment figures, God is an attachment figure then, and he did uh, seven years of research um, with hundreds and hundreds of people, uh, basically getting some data about how people attach to God, um, and his uh, PhD was on that. If you ever want to look through his literary catalog, it was 54,000 articles. Um, so he's a freak, okay? We'll just establish that right off the bat. Um, so 
Tonight, though, uh, I was asked to talk about, uh, to share about Matthew 6. You guys are going through the Sermon on the Mount. Um, It is the greatest sermon ever, and anybody that tries to teach a sermon about the Sermon on the Mount never does it full justice, because Jesus taught it. So we're all, like, set up to, like, not do as well, because it's Jesus. How are you going to do as good as Jesus? Um, But uh, the Sermon on the Mount is, is a beautiful, beautiful compilation of Uh, important things that Jesus spoke to his disciples. Um, And sound guy, it slipped. I didn't do it, I promise. Um, So he he spoke these words to his disciples, and and then there was a bunch of other people around listening, but his disciples were the main ones that he was really trying to communicate this to. Uh, And that's how Jesus rolled. Like, uh, if you look, he wasn't super interested in crowds. Uh, He was actually super interested in uh, just a few and trying to help them and walk with them and be with them on a daily basis, just communicating about normal things of life and being there with them and connecting. And so in the midst of this connection, Jesus gives this phenomenal teaching. And Chad was really kind to give me like a massive portion of it. He's like, hey, if you can just hit verses like 19 through, let's say 34, and I'm like, oh, great. So treasure, where your treasures, there your heart will be also. Uh, eye is the lamp of the body. We'll throw that one in there for good measure. Um, and then don't be anxious. So uh, just to let you know, I'm not going to cover, this is not an exegesis of 19 through 34. We're going to read 19 through 34. And then what it was asked of me was, tell us about dealing with anxiety. Because Jesus addresses this idea of anxiety. And so I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to nerd out for a few minutes on some of the neuroscience of anxiety, and then maybe we'll see if I can land it back in where we're talking about. Okay? Pray for me. All right. So Matthew 6, 19 through 24 says this. Don't store up treasures here on earth where moths eat them and rust destroys them and where thieves break in and steal. Store your treasures in heaven where moths and rust cannot destroy And thieves do not break in and steal. Wherever your treasure is, there the desires of your heart will also be. Your eye is like a lamp that provides light for your body. When your eye is healthy, your whole body is filled with light. But when your eye is unhealthy, your whole body is filled with darkness. And if the light you think you have is actually darkness, how deep that darkness is. Just to let you know, you could have done three sermons already just on that stuff right there. No one can serve two masters. Here's another sermon to do. Uh, For you will hate one and love the other, and you will be devoted to one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and be enslaved to money. So Jesus is just kind of sprinkling lots of different things here. It's real fun. Okay, he goes on. He says, that is why I tell you not to worry about everyday life. Okay, so he's tying it in. That is why I tell you. He hits these few different things. Money, what you do in your life, what you allow into your life, where you, where you concern yourself with treasure, where your deepest desires are. And he's saying all those things, and then he brings it in. And in older translations, we get the word therefore, right? And anybody who grew up in church always knows, you ask the question, what's the therefore? Nice job. Really good. Chad, you should be proud. So... That is why I tell you not to worry about everyday life. Whether you have enough food and drink 
or enough clothes to wear? Isn't life more than food and your body more than clothing? Now keep in mind, this is the guy who also fed thousands of people. Okay? So we're not saying like, Jesus just wants us to not ever worry about eating and and not worry about what we clothe ourselves with because he's never going to take care of that stuff anyways, right? Like, the, he knows our needs, okay? He's not disconnected from everyday life. Sometimes we walk through life, and we kind of put Jesus in this place um, where it's, he's, he's really, like, detached from what you're walking through. And I just, I just want to tell you that's just not true, Like, Jesus was not detached from pain. Jesus was not detached from concern. Jesus was not detached from things going poorly. In fact, the culmination of his life on earth were things going very poorly. He knew what that was. And sometimes we read scriptures like this, and we just, we hear Christians say things like, hey, just don't worry about it, give it to God. And I, I don't know about you, but I work with people day in and day out. I think I have five sessions tomorrow of people who are freaking out, okay? Maybe not totally freaking out, but some of them are. Um, I, I have never in my life seen a moment where somebody walks into like a pastor's office or a counselor's office or anybody else's space, and they're freaking out, and, and you just go, hey, just don't worry about it. Give it to God. And then they're just like, yeah, you did it. <laughs> you did it. It's gone. Right? It doesn't happen. So what Jesus is doing has to be deeper than just, hey, don't worry about it. God knows what you need. He'll figure it out. Move on. Like, he's, he's doing something deeper here, okay? Don't get stuck on how everybody else is sucked at dealing with your anxiety and fear, okay? Jesus doesn't suck at it. That's scriptural. Um, Okay. So he says, look at the birds. They don't plant or harvest or store food in barns. For your heavenly Father feeds them, and aren't you more valuable to him than they are? Can all your worries add a single moment to your life? No. That's free. And why worry about your clothing? Look at the lilies of the field and how they grow. They don't work or make their clothing. Yet Solomon in all his glory was not dressed as beautifully as they are. And if God cares so wonderfully for wildflowers that are here today and thrown into the fire tomorrow, he will certainly care for you. Why do you have so little faith? So don't worry about these things saying, what will we eat? What will we drink? What will we wear? These things dominate the thoughts of unbelievers. But your heavenly Father already knows all your needs. Seek the kingdom of God above all else. See, isn't this a lot he gave me? This is a lot. Seek the kingdom of God above all else and live righteously, and he will give you everything you need. So don't worry about tomorrow, for tomorrow will bring its own worries. Today's trouble is enough for today. All right. A lot of the time, uh, people, at least in the church... Now, we're, we're on campus right now, so that's convenient. But people part of church, there's been at times a weird relationship between Christians and the church and theology and psychology, okay? Let's just bring the elephant out 
right into the room, okay? Because if we're really honest, there's a lot of weird crap in, in psychology, okay? There's some really weird stuff. In fact, I mean, we're all adults here, aren't we, right? Do you know that Freud, how many of you have heard of Freud? Okay. All those hands need to be prayed for, every single one of them, okay? Freud gave us some good stuff, okay? But Freud was also, he gave us some really whacked out stuff. You know, he stopped having sex with his wife after 40 years old, and then all the stuff he wrote on human sexuality was after that. Dr. Manock was like, if his wife would just take him to bed, we wouldn't have nearly all the jacked up sexual psychology we do. Come on. We can get into the Christian ethic of sex, and it'd be, that'd be, please invite me back for that one. I love talking about that. Okay, so, you guys, you get it everywhere else. You can get it here at church stuff, too. Come on. Um, so, good psychology, uh, in the 90s, they started scanning the brain, okay? Uh, if you've noticed, I'm moving into nerd out mode, so switch with me. In the 90s, they started scanning the brain, and there was this huge think tank at UCLA headed up by a guy named Dr. Daniel Siegel. Raise your hand if you've heard of Daniel Siegel. Ooh, what have you heard about him? What? Oh, he doesn't talk about that stuff. Come on. Um, no, he's, uh, he's a great neuroscientist, um, and uh, if you've ever seen like the hand model of the brain... Uh, he's the one that came up with that and teaches that. So um, anyways, he was the head of a, of a think tank that had 40 PhDs on it at UCLA. And they spent five years pouring over tens of thousands of brain scans, okay? Previous to that, all of psychology had been based off of uh, what we would call more of a soft science approach. It wasn't empirical data. It was more observation-based data, Okay. So they would go and they would do surveys or they would study, like have, you know, watch people in rooms and do different things like that, ask questions, and they would gather some data. Good enough, but also not great at times. Freud, seriously, come on. So uh, when they started scanning the brain, they actually started to get hard evidence, empirical data about how our brains are wired, who wires them, at what point in our lives, in what ways. We know now that in the first five years of your life, your brain is wired four times as much as any other time in your life. Guess how much uh, understandable language happens between a, f a zero through five-year-old and a parent? It's very little. Which tells us this. It's not about what you tell to your children. It's actually what you do with them. It's actually the emotional presence they feel with you that will actually wire into them a sense of who they are and their sense of relationship. We know that in the first five years of life, it's still dangling, sorry guys if I'm messing this up. Um, in the first five years of life, mom wires for sense of relationship, dad wires for sense of identity. Sense of identity. Now, if you look at that on a macro level, you'll find that the decline of fatherhood has gone down over the last 100 years and you'll look at the, the incline of basically a macro sense of not knowing who we are has risen. And so we're looking for all sorts of things to give us meaning, purpose, 
All sorts of different things like that. So we find it in different groups and in different uh, identities and all these different things and in, in, in political things or in gender things. Just to let you know, like, sure, like figure out whatever gender thing you want to figure out. But I just want to let you know you're more than a gender. You're more than a political party. You're more than, than a degree that you're pursuing. Gosh, every single one of those things is going to fail you. Every single one of those. It's part of what Jesus is talking about. He's like, stop putting so much stock into the everyday things. Because there's something deeper to who you are. And neuroscience is just figuring it out in the last 30 years. I can imagine the Lord being like, wow, finally. Gosh, gave you guys all those brains for that and it's taken you this long my goodness so uh in dr manock's 40 years of psychotherapy you're, you're going to hear me reference him a lot because i don't have all the things behind my name like he does so deal with it uh he's found good psychology based on neuroscience and good theology have actually never been at odds they really haven't ever been at odds um Scripture is the revelation of God's truth. If you read uh, Proverbs 25, you'll read about, it's, it actually translates the word, it's the king's joy to discover. Actually, if you, if you look at that word, it's actually better translated scientist, that it's a scientist's joy uh, to discover truth. And that's exactly what science is. It's the discovery of truth. Scripture, revelation of truth. Science, discovery of truth. Good science. Key. So, I just talked about 90s and the social brain. What they figured out in the 90s, I didn't talk about the social brain, just the 90s. What they figured out in the 90s was this. Everything up to that point had been a sense of understanding uh, that we are uh, independent, autonomous beings, that we need to find our, our worth and our identity and our uh, sense of esteem and our sense of, of um our own history, everything we need to find on our own. So really big movements on things like self-regulatory things came about. So you need to learn how to cope, and you need to learn how to have good self-esteem, and you need to learn how to just believe in yourself, right? Yeah, didn't work. It wasn't actually based on neuroscience. It's not based on how our brain's actually wired. What they found after doing tens of thousands of those brain scans was they found that we actually have zero DNA for self-regulation. Now, we do self-regulation, but it's because our DNA is based out of what's called co-regulation. Co-regulation is this, is that you are in relationship to someone else. Okay, Think about this just for a minute. Okay, We're going to go back to sex. It's really fun. I know. Um, takes two. It takes two to create a person. And then when that, that beginning of the, sexual, the, the biological process of a new life happens, it doesn't, you don't just plop it in the ground and then, like, water it. <laughs> they were really dumb a few years ago. I know. It grows in a person. It's connected to a person. In fact, in the, my daughter who you guys saw up there, wasn't she adorable? Just the cutest. You should, oh my gosh, she's so fun. She was born three months premature. She was born 26 
weeks along gestationally. Uh, she was one pound, 14 ounces. Tiny little thing, okay? She didn't experience third trimester in my wife's tummy, which actually a huge amount of your limbic system, which is also known as your lizard brain, anybody in psychology get me tracking, right? Uh, develops, it actually develops up to about 90% of its development during third trimester, which is incredible. But again, it's connected. And then once the baby is out, there's constant connection needed. Years ago, and when I say years ago, I'm talking decades and decades ago, they did this great study. It was awful, actually. They took 20 kids, babies, infants. Have you heard, who's, who's heard of this study? Somebody said, oh, yeah, it's terrible. They took 20 infants and they put them in uh, like a ward and they fed them and they changed their diapers and made sure they were warm and then that's all they did for them. Anybody heard of this study? Raise your hand if you've heard of this study. How many of the babies died? 11 before they called the whole thing off. 11. Are you kidding me? Two should have been more than enough. I don't think this is working. We should really start holding them again. No, I'll give it a few more. Are you kidding me? Who is the guy? I'm sorry. It just ticks me off. Anyways, um, they found that you could meet the basic needs, physical needs, to be clean, to be warm, to be fed, and you'll still die. You'll still die as a baby. Well, guess what? A lot of you over the last two years, have experienced times where you go large amounts of time without real deep, true connection with somebody else, and you were clean, and you were warm, and you were fed, but all of a sudden, you started dying. You started becoming anxious and depressed and not knowing what to do with life. This is part of who you are. It's part of your DNA. You're made to be in connection. So, they figured out that we are meant for this thing called co-regulation. And so this whole shift, and it's honestly, it's still happening. Dr. Manock says this, and this is bad news for you guys, sorry. Um, Dr. Manock says most universities are about 15 to 20 years behind the leading research when it comes to this stuff. So our society is mostly still built on what's called one-person psychology. That's that sense of self-regulatory. You should be able to just find it in yourself like Disney. If you can dream it, you can do it. That's not true, okay? It's not true. The shift is to what's called two-person psychology, okay? So it's a big shift. You might not think it's a big shift, but every single one of us still operates in one-person psychology uh, most of the time. We are often thinking about well, if something's wrong with me, what's, what do I need to do to fix it? And how do I need to help myself? And da-da-da-da-da. And we don't actually realize that everything we do is connected to somebody else. So what does this look like? You go from self-identity, self-agency, self-worth, self-esteem to self-other. If that little seven-year-old girl that you saw in the picture walked in here and told me that her unicorn costume broke, which she wore the other night, and it was adorable... I should have showed that picture, my bad. If she would have walked in here and she would have told, and you guys would have heard her say, Dad, my unicorn costume broke. My horn broke. Now, if, if, if we're truly 
one person psychology, self-regulatory creatures, I should be able to just take her and put her back in this corner and just let her magically feel better about herself. She'll get over it. She'll believe in herself. She'll find the strength to do it. But what we found with the brain scans is we just, that's not true. It's not possible. What you guys would expect me to do is what? Go over and like talk to her, hug her, right? Be compassionate, empathetic. Yeah, we've been doing that for years and years and years, but we've still operated that like, hey, once you feel better, you can just fix everything yourself. Every single aspect of your life has always been in connection with someone else. Self-history is not self-history, it's self-other history. You look at every single thing in your life, every memory, every moment is always in connection or lack of connection with someone else. And you go, well, what about the moments where I was super depressed because I was super lonely and nobody cared about me, da 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 You just proved my point. It was painful because you didn't have the connection with the other. Interesting how that works. So, why am I talking about all this? You guys already had school all day. You don't want to talk about all this stuff, right? <clears throat> Co-regulation, when it happens, there's an actual part of your brain that a system called the mirror neuron system that activates that only activates when you're in emotional connection with someone else. It doesn't activate any other time. And there's a part of your brain that actually develops only in that kind of connection and bondedness. And so, uh, oftentimes when people are talking to me, they're going, well, is co-regulation just really good listening to each other? And I'm like, yes and no. Uh, co-regulation, a lot of times we, uh, people have heard there's two ways to listen, right? You listen to hear versus listening to what? What? Understand. Good. Who said it? Yeah, you did. Good job. Okay, co-regulation, we go deeper. Listen to hear, listen to understand, listen to experience. Listen to experience. So if you've ever had a heart-to-heart with a good friend or a parent where you were in a place of like pain, heartache, crying, and that person came along and they cried with you. They didn't just understand, they actually experienced your pain with you. Mirror neuron system activates, all of a sudden you actually experience yourself better. You can, you can even be talking in that moment and realize you're kind of like, have you ever had a conversation with a really close friend where you just felt so connected that you walked out of it feeling like you knew who you were better? Anybody ever had that experience? Mirror neuron system. It's phenomenal. Okay? So, guess what happens when we're co-regulated with? It's the same thing that happens when a baby who's crying is picked up and held, and the eyes see each other, and there's care, and all of a sudden the baby calms. It's actually the same function going on. Now we just don't hold each other and coo. That'd be the weirdest thing. <laughs> Sitting there with your buddy, you'd just be like, bro, I just flunked that test. It sucked. And it, so all of a sudden, the guy like reaches over and is like, shh. <laughs> it's 
starts touching your lips, it'll be okay. Dude, it won't be okay now. Things are much worse, okay? No, but when you have a deep connection, when you, you don't just listen to hear, and there's a whole thing about how to do that. So don't just be like, I'm going to go do that. You need help, okay? Um, you listen to hear, you listen to understand, you listen to experience. Because when somebody else experiences what you are experiencing, you're no longer alone. So guess who talked about this? Jesus. That would have been the perfect time to give the Sunday school answer. You guys missed it. Flunked every single one of you. Missed it. Jesus. He said something so profound when he said this. He said, weep with those who weep. Rejoice with those who rejoice. In our, in our society, it would be, hey, if somebody's weeping, like, let them be. They'll get over it. Um, you know, maybe go listen to them for a few minutes, but don't let them bring you down too. Like, don't let them become toxic in your life. They're just always upset, right? Or they're, they're really happy. They did really well. Well, this is where I'm at, and I want you to respect my feelings of where I'm at. So if you could just go, like, party with your friends and not with me, I'd like to stay here and eat a half a tub of ice cream Watch Grey's Anatomy reruns, please, okay? Our society, that's what we do. We're so individualistic, and it's killing us. It's not how we were designed. The scriptures say it, and now neuroscience says it. So what does all this have to do with anxiety? Something, I hope. Um, if I were to spend more time on co-regulation, you'd find in co-regulation, you're moving towards each other to hold what's going on together. You explore it together. If possible, you resolve it, but you're not burdened to resolve it, okay? There's a whole thing. I've got a seminar on YouTube. If you're interested, let me know. I can send it to you. In the process, you not only get solutions, but you bond with the person, which is the greater healing, okay? Uh, quick story. Uh, man and wife who were uh, married in massive uh, conflict were on the verge of divorce, they did a test with, they had, they said, you know, we'll participate in this experiment. And so they, they went and they put the brain scan thing on the head and, uh, they shocked her ankle and, uh, the pain registered and she said, ow, and then the pain registered in the pain center of the brain, right? Okay. And then they brought her husband in and had husband who they're in conflict, they're about on the edge of divorce, had her, had him hold her hand. Anybody heard of this study? It's a really interesting one. Um, had, her, had him hold her hand, uh, shocked her ankle. Uh, she said, ow, pain center lit up. They said, okay, you guys go do emotionally focused therapy for a few months until it resolves. So I think it took him like three or four months of intensive, like at least weekly, if probably not more, uh, psychotherapy utilizing emotionally focused therapy, which helped them learn how to bond and co-regulate together. And they actually, they actually healed their relationship, no longer on the edge of divorce, fully committed back to each other, came back, machine on, shocked her leg. She goes, ow, you know, pain center lights up. Bring in the husband, and I'm not even, I'm not joking with you, okay? Bring in the husband. He holds her hand, 
physical connection actually activates a whole other part of the brain too. So holds her hand. If you're wondering, dudes, you're like, every time she brushes my arm, I get something going on. <laughs> it's physiological. <laughs> Anyways, you're going to have a lot of cleanup to do after this, man. You're welcome. Have a lot of talks at Fall Retreat about all sorts of things. Uh, so bring the guy in, hold her hand, shock her. She says, ow, but literally in the pain center, it doesn't light up. That you actually, when you get people to bond, it actually helps rewire their brains. Your brain is actually wired through relationship. That's a whole other thing. You didn't give me enough time, okay? It's crazy. Anyways, co-regulation, having bonded, deep connection, brings about this ability to do exactly what Jesus said we are to do, which is exactly how we're designed. Weep with those who weep, mourn with those, uh, rejoice with those who rejoice. That kind of connectedness, and we're going to keep talking about it. Okay, when you've co-regulated, you see, we'll move on. Okay, um, bonding is healing. Bonding is healing. At some point tonight, hopefully, I don't know, if we'll see how long I blabber, but uh, I'm, I'm going to do some Q&A either during the thing or potentially after. Um, and, and if you guys are dealing with stuff, I, wanna, I just want to give you a few tidbits on how to potentially handle things. But um, the biggest thing that I work with clients over and over and over again is to get them to a place of bondedness. Because when they can bond, when they can be in a place of deep, deep abiding connection and safe haven, they actually heal. It literally changes neural pathways in the brain. Okay? Your anxiety, your depression, your all those things, the things that Jesus is talking about are actual neurological responses happening in your brain, and he knows it, which is why he said what he did. Okay? Galatians 6.2 says this, bear one another's burdens and so fulfill the law of Christ. You want to know, what is, what is it? Like, how many times did Jesus say, this is my law? Very few, okay? But Galatians actually tells us, if you learn to bear one another's burdens, be with them, walk with them, experience their pain, uh, rejoice with them, mourn with them, you actually fulfill the very way of the kingdom. So, Relationship is designed to heal. Notice in our passage, and in every other passage that talks about anxiety or fear, there's this one thing that happens, okay? Uh, Matthew, uh, where we are at in Matthew 6, but then also Matthew 10, uh, 19, is Jesus at one point, he says, when you're arrested and you have to stand before the courts and give an account, he says, don't worry. That would be a frightening time, okay? But he actually, he says, don't worry, for my Father will give you all that you need to say. Uh, Luke 10, 41, Mary and Martha. How many of you are familiar with the story of Mary and Martha? Four of you? Come on, man, what are you doing here? 
How many of you are familiar with Mary and Martha? Great. Okay, so everybody knows. What was Martha doing? What was she doing? She's going to come up here and act it out, apparently. Wow, that was awesome. She just, like, had a dance move. This is the Martha, right? Um, Okay, so Martha was just, like, getting all the food ready and prepping everything and just busy, 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 right? And then Martha complains, right? And Mary's not helping, right? Okay? I don't know what it was. Mary's not helping, okay? I don't know. And what does Jesus reply to her? Chad, what does he say? Yes, he says, Martha, Martha. He actually uses the same word he uses in chapter 6 when he says, do not worry. He says, Martha, you're worried about many things. And then he says, but only one thing is required. And Mary has chosen the better. Because what did Mary choose? Relationship. I'm going to sit with Jesus. I'm going to sit with Jesus. I'm going to be with him. I'm going to connect with him. I'm going to experience him. Philippians 4.6, the passage that I have to combat the most with people. I don't know how many people have walked into my office and said, my pastor said, just don't worry about anything. It's in Philippians 4, but pray about everything, and I'm still worried. I'm like, I know you are. You poor thing. (sighs) Don't worry about anything, but pray about everything. And then he encourages prayer, and he says the peace of God. He's talking about connection with God. Prayer is not meant to be a ritualistic exercise. It's relational. It's relational. It's literally co-regulation with God. You learn to share your pain. You learn to share your joy. You learn to share your hopes and your dreams. That's what prayer is. One guy that got it really well was a guy named David. David really jacked things up. Like, all those things that you're like, man, I hope I never grow up to be like an adulterous person. He did it. Man, I really hope I never grow up to murder someone. He did that one too. He really jacked things up. And yet God still said, he's a man after my own heart. And opponents of God would say, so an, an adulterer and a murderer is a man after your own heart, huh? I go, you idiots. We're all, we all suck. That's rule number two of life. People are stupid. <laughs> you can ask me about my three rules later. But David was a man after God's own heart because he learned to share his heart with God. Psalm 23. Yea, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil because you told me how to get out of my crisis. I will fear no evil because you provided all of the answers and information that will fix my every issue. I will fear no evil because you just magically pulled me out and then there were unicorns. 
We treat, and, and okay, I'm standing in a campus, so I'm going to get in trouble for saying this one. We treat education like it's salvation. It's not. It's not. We have more information available to people in our society than ever before. And have you noticed that everybody sucks? <laughs> like, it's just going down the tubes at a faster rate than ever. And, and there's a crisis that happens, and I constantly hear, we just need to educate them, and then they'll make more informed decisions. I'm like, that's not working. It's not working. It's really not working. <laughs> Information doesn't mean transformation. Look at the people that Jesus pushed back against the most, the Pharisees. They were experts on the information of God. They missed God himself because they weren't concerned about the relationship. It was all question and answers to them. Answer my questions. Here's all. No, 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 no. I just spoke with uh, 50. I, I was speaking for 50 pastors this morning about how to deal with um, the stress of pastoring in the last two years. It's been a little bit difficult, a little bit. And I, and I told him, I said, we're just not question and answer people. Like people keep demanding of us to have the answers and I just, I don't have them because I was never called to have them. The Bible's not a question and answer book. It's a relational book. It's a means for you to experience who God is and who uh, his son is. It's a means for, you to, a means for you to experience life in connection to God. That's the purpose of it. It's not meant to be some scientific document that we pull every single little thing apart. Have you noticed that there are lots of mysteries in the scriptures? Hence interpretations. Hence denominations. There's all sorts of ways you could take sorts of things. Because they weren't interested, the old rabbis were not interested in answering every question. They were interested in experiencing God. And that's what Jesus was looking for. And that's what he's saying in Matthew 6, too. You want answers to every single question in your life. But I just want you to seek me. So, yea, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil. Because you are with me. There it is. We're constantly looking for the fix. Constantly looking for the fix. How do I fix this? How do I, how do I get rid of my anxiety? How do I get rid of my depression? How do I, how do I not suck at this class that I'm in? Do your homework, show up, you can do it, okay? That one's another free one. But I want you to notice something. If you've ever heard of the things called the fruit of the, of the Holy Spirit, right? Galatians 5. Take a look at that list and you'll find that eight out of the nine of them are all things that have to be done in relationship to other people. Like nobody says, oh, he's such a kind man when he's just by himself. He's kind because of relationship, patience, love, faithfulness, gentleness. Everything is about relationship. 
Sometimes we go look for these moments where God just will show up and there's incredible experiences, and I get it. Those are wonderful. I love them too, but I'll tell you what, the real fruit, the real results of the Spirit of God working in a person will come out in their relationships. So, how do we get more of that fruit in our lives? How do we get more of that movement of God's spirit in our lives? Jesus gave it to us, John 15. I am the vine, you are the branches. When you're joined with me and I with you, the relationship intimate and organic, the harvest is sure to be abundant. Separated, you can't produce a thing. Let's go back to our text. Don't worry about these things, saying, what will we eat? What will we drink? What will we wear? These things dominate thoughts of unbelievers. Unbelievers is not a category of what you put on a card of saying, what's your religious affiliation? Unbelievers is those who are disconnected to relationship with God. Hell is the ultimate disconnection from God. Paul says it this way, now we see us through a glass dimly, but then we will see each other face to face. Heaven is perfect relational connection with our creator. That's what it is. These things dominate the people who do not have an abiding relationship with Jesus. And you go, oh my gosh, I, oh, they dominate me too. What do I do? There's hope. There's hope. They dominate me too at times. But the more I move into relationship with God and then with his, with his body, the scriptures say that we are the body of Christ. And we're not talking about like a body of water. We're talking about flesh and blood. The more I move into connection with others. Somebody gave a thing about small groups. I just helped you out a ton, okay? The more we move into that, we get that connection. We find safety. We find hope. We find people who are willing to be with us, not fix us. Small group leaders, don't fix them. You don't, how, you don't know how anyways, but the more you move into just being with one another, say, I don't know, but I want to be with you in it. I tell that to my clients all the time. I've got clients who come to me. I had a client come to me. They've been married 43 years, and they had never worked on their marriage. Right? She just, she got it just now. She's like, are you serious? And they expect in a few 50-minute sessions for things to be like roses again. I'm like, y'all get ready for another 43 years because that's how long it's going to take us. <laughs> but I sit there with them, and at times I just go, I don't know. But I want to be with you in it. I want to walk with you. I'm not going to run away from you. I had a client couple come in a couple weeks ago. I've been meeting with them for five months. They've been married for a number of years uh, one of them, it's their third marriage. One of them, uh, it was their first time being married, and they're in their 40s. And they had lived single their entire lives before that. And 
they didn't know what it's like to actually be married. And they're having all sorts of fun times. And they come in, and usually they're pretty cordial, and they really do love each other. Phenomenal people, honestly. But that day was a bad day. And they come in, and, and about 15 minutes into the session, it's a bad thing when they turn from facing you to then just at each other, and they're screaming in your office. It's just not a good feeling, okay? And you can feel the emotional presence of just like anger. It's just thick in the room. And I just, I just prayed. I was like, Holy Spirit, you got you to gotta do something with them. I don't got jack for this. <laughs> and, I, and so I said, hey, bring it back to me. Bring it back to me. Face me. And then I just started asking questions, which if you were to go and listen to my seminar on co-regulation, be a lot of talk about this. I just started asking questions about their hearts and about what they mentioned and what was the desire of their heart with that and what was the desire of this person's heart with that. And, and did you hear that? And, and just, just exploring it, just exploring it a ton. Just kind of weeping with them, going, this sucks. I don't have an answer. I'm not going to tell you, hey, go change this in your life, and then it'll all be good. I'm just, this sucks. Let's just explore it. And all of a sudden, both of them just broke, just started bawling because they heard the desires of each other's hearts. And they just started apologizing to each other. And it was like I wasn't in the room again. They started, like, kissing and... That's as far as they went, don't worry. <laughs> but they were like apologizing and like telling each other how sorry they were and saying, I'm so glad that this is a desire of your heart and we got down to the heart stuff. And I, I didn't have the answer. I didn't have it. I didn't go, if you just change this, this, and this, everything will be perfect. I don't bring that with people when they're struggling. What I bring is this, I'll walk with you. Though you're in the valley of the shadow of death, I'll be with you. I'll hear you. I won't freak out. I'll weep with you when you're weeping. I'll rejoice with you when you're rejoicing. And guess what happens? God's designed us for a relationship that when somebody feels safe like that, all these different things activate in the brain and the anxiety breaks up and the pain breaks up. And when you share it, this is the biggest thing that they came out of that five-year study with all those brain scans. They found that shared pain, shared anxiety, shared sadness breaks the power of sadness, breaks the power of anxiety. That's it. That's the big thing they found throughout five years of thousands and thousands of brain scans. If you bond, it breaks up the pain. Which is why God's most common promise to us was, I will never leave you. I will never forsake you. And he says, I'll even send my very spirit to be with you. Some of you, I don't know if you're all believers in here or not. I don't know if you're all people who have said, I'm going to put my faith and hope and trust in Jesus. He came, lived the life we should have lived, died the death that we deserve to die on a cross, taking the punishment for sin, the separation from God, the Father in that moment. He died and then was raised to new life. The same power that raised him from the dead is now available to those of us who put our hope and trust in him. That spirit, he says, will be the helper, the counselor. So he'll walk with you. 
walk with you. Your heavenly father. Notice Jesus goes back to his father all the time. He's in the garden, calls out to his father. He's on the cross. Father, forgive them. Pushed, pushed uh, by the Pharisees. He says, I know what my father's about. And my father knows what I'm about. Every single thing comes back to him going back to this relationship with his father. Everything is about the relationship with the father. Your father knows, already knows all your needs. Seek first the kingdom of God above all else and live righteously. Just to let you know, do a word study of that word righteously. It's not about being perfect in the law. Righteousness was actually a relational word. It means to live in right relationship with other people. Seek the kingdom of God. Live in right relationship. He will give you everything you need. Don't worry about tomorrow, for tomorrow will bring its own worries. Today's trouble is enough for today. We're designed by God for relationship. When, he, when Jesus addresses anxiety, he points them to relationship with God the Father over and over again. He's trying to say God the Father is safe. Look, look at all these flowers. They're here today and gone tomorrow, and yet the Father takes care of them. Look at these birds. Aren't you more valuable? The Father will take care of you. He's trying to help them understand he's safe. He's good. It takes me about six to eight sessions to develop that with a client. It's called Therapeutic Alliance. They feel like I'm safe, I'm good, and then all of a sudden they spill their guts and I walk with them and it breaks up their pain and anxiety. It's not because of magical things because of me, it's because it's how God designed us. Seek first. Chad, I'm going to invite you down. Um, I just want to encourage you guys uh, as you're going off to the retreat and, and different things like that, or if you have questions, I'd love to answer them later, but um, we often complicate it. We make it really complicated about all these different things we need to do. And, and I know that you know, there's really good things about spiritual disciplines and all these different things we can do, but, but it really just comes down to a, a, a deep like desire to be in right relationship with God. And I'm going to leave you with that.